purpose is transforming the world of work and business. Those leading the way are values-based and people-focused leaders who see business as a force for good. Host Kevin Monroe explores how tapping into the power of purpose infuses your business with meaning and touches the lives of your employees while positively impacting the communities you serve. With the Higher Purpose Podcast, here's Kevin Monroe. Here we are in Episode 80 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. And wow, are we, you and me, in for a treat today. It's not that often that I've had return guests on the Higher Purpose Podcast. Not that there's anything wrong with having return guests. It's just that we have so many amazing people to connect and converse with. But today's guest, well, if you've been listening last summer in episode 50, so that means 30 episodes ago, I was joined by Renee Smith of the Make Work More Human Project. Last week, Renee and I were chatting about doing it again, and I peered into the podcast databank and discovered that of the 79 published episodes dating all the way back to August 2017, that the conversation with Renee that we called Making Work More Human is the fourth most downloaded episode. Wow. How about that? So here we are continuing that conversation. So much has transpired since we last spoke that we're going to catch up on that real quickly, and then we're going much deeper. So if you haven't yet heard episode 50, look it up later, give it a listen. But for now, get ready for what promises to be an amazing conversation. Renee Smith, what a joy to welcome you back to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Hi, Kevin. It's it's great to be back. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. This is going to be so rich and enjoyable. I seriously had chill bumps as we were exchanging emails about this conversation yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty delighted too. So before we take the plunge and we dive into this conversation, and I mean, it's going to take off, but I want to ask, what's something you're grateful for right now? Oh, gosh, you know, I am so grateful for the people who have come forward, like literally across the globe, who have come forward and said, yes, I agree with you, or I'm part of this movement that's building too. So people far away who are encouraging, even like yourself, you know, we've never actually met in person. No, we haven't. This community that's out in the world, and then people close at hand who are stepping up and, you know, becoming involved in the work that we're doing in Washington state government. And um, helping to just encourage me personally as a human being um, and to provide support. I'm really grateful for that. Me too. So it was about 11 months ago that you and I met, February of last year, you know, through podcasting, there was a conversation about love. Somebody connected us on LinkedIn. We started getting to know one another. And that was the first time And the project you lead is Make Work More Human. The website is makeworkmorehuman.com. And I can't tell you how many times I've pointed people to this website. I just love it. And I say, just look at the website. Look at the top. You know, more love, less fear, amazing results, make work more human, right? That's still on the homepage. Right. That's it. Who do you think is behind this site, you know? And they always, <laughs> and then I can scroll down to the bottom. It's Washington State Government. And so, you know, that was kind of my introduction to this whole idea of making work more human. And now there's the Humans First Club, and there are all of these conversations, and that's part of the network you're talking about. So if you found this conversation because of the Humans First Club or some other human-centered 
focus on work, workplace, leadership, all of that, you're in the right place. We're delighted to have Renee joining us. She's one of the folks that has been, you know, pioneering this work in the state of Washington. So before we jump into the deep end of the pool, as I did when we were talking to Marcel a couple of weeks ago about love, let's wade in just a little bit. Let's set the stage and let's take people in. In the last six months since we've spoke, last on the podcast, what are some of the exciting developments that you've seen relative to the Make Work More Human project? Yeah, so the work that I began, as someone can hear in Podcast 50, um, the work that I began started in the Department of Enterprise Services, which is an agency of Washington state government where I led organization development and lean transformation work there. And we also had an externally focused program, Government to Government Consulting. And I started doing the research and kind of teaching workshops, sharing, speaking, writing from that space. And over the course of last year, also had the opportunity to travel, both when I would take personal trips and then some conferencing and really traveled kind of all over North America, LA, Nashville, Toronto, New Brunswick, Ottawa, all over the place, as well as all over Washington. And I even spoke in Barcelona. Yeah, I was on vacation and I had the chance to do that. So what I've found has just been heartwarming. First of all, just a continuing growth of this movement and an embrace of this big idea that humans want less fear and more love in their lives, including their work lives, that we flourish when we create more love in our workplaces, and that you know making work more human-centered is really the kind of the key to creating the kind of organizations that prosper and flourish, both for humans that do the work and the customers that we're serving. Part of what's been happening this last year is just the opportunity to widely explore this work and share this work all over the world and then to bring that back into Washington state government now. And I was invited to move this work out of the Department of Enterprise Services and bring it into the Governor's Results Washington office and do this work full time. So not just a slice of what I was doing, but now this is my full time work. And to really focus in now on developing resources and services for the state of Washington, for state agencies, for public servants who are doing the hard work of serving Washingtonians in all kinds of different ways and helping them to have both the encouragement and the support and that kind of direction setting around this and to come alongside those who are already headed that way and to provide all kinds of, again, resources and services to help them on that journey. So that's been the big shift is to move from DES to Results Washington. Okay, I'm really tempted to go deeper on a question, but I'm going to hold that one and we're going to come back to that. I, I just yeah. remember that. <laughs> so let's wait out a little deeper. I love this journey. What an amazing journey. So in the last six or seven months, out of all of these conversations, out of all of these encounters, these sessions, these workshops, you know, different sizes and flavors and different conferences, are there one or two encounters or epiphanies that kind of top of mind, you know, that you just stay there. You continue to savor them. They're marinating for deeper insight. Yeah. So there's a couple things that strike me. I mean, there's so many, but a couple that like come to mind this morning in this moment while we're recording this. One is a moment when I was presenting at a coaching summit in Seattle at the Lean Enterprise Institute's coaching summit. And when I said, you know, when I shared this idea, or this, sometimes it's hard to find the right language even, the, it's more than an idea, this practice, this direction, this philosophy of making work more human by creating 
more love and less fear in the workplace. When I said that out loud, someone in the back of the room, like let out this like noise of this human sound of relief. Like wow. she couldn't stop herself. You know, it was just the spontaneous, oh, this, oh, thank God somebody said that, you know? And she came up and spoke with me afterwards. And it was beautiful because it was very authentic. Yeah. It was like the thing that her soul had been waiting to hear is, yes, love. And she just couldn't even hold back visceral reaction to that. I'm one of those people. And every yeah. once in a while when I do something like that in public, my wife elbows me. You know, <laughs> That was loud, honey. But you know, when something strikes you like this, Renee, you're just, wow. I mean, Yes, yeah. you know, it does yeah. because it resonated so deeply with her. And obviously, my guess is obviously she hadn't encountered plenty of fear in her journey somewhere and was longing for love, which we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what's another epiphany? So the other example, the other thing that I'm recalling is the number of people and one man sort of epitomizes this one. People have come to me and said things like this man said, which was, and he was an older gentleman, close to retirement. And he was so sad. It resonated with him. And yet he was so sad. And his response was, I wish, I wish that this had been part of my work all these years. I wish that someone had said this to me 30 years ago. I wish that this conversation had been happening 30 years ago because he'd spent his entire career living in a culture and a workplace and multiple. It wasn't just one workplace, you know, but spending his career not thinking it was okay to be fully human mm-hmm. and having to deny that. And, and I think just, you know, express sorrow over what that really meant. Now, when you started sharing that, Apollo Coelho quote just popped in my mind. It's one that I think of so often, and it's in this kind of context. I think this was from The Alchemist. I'm starting something now that I wish I had started 10 years ago. Yeah. Thank God I didn't wait 20. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there is this sense of, gosh, yes, couldn't this have happened sooner? But hey, let's rejoice and celebrate that it's happening now. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think his words, though, tap into something that is deeply there for a lot of people, which is even though sort of popular wisdom or, you know, the popular opinion might be that, oh, you know, not love at work or you've got to be hard nosed and, you know, it's a tough environment, like all of that, like, check yourself at the door and come in and just get your work done. Even though that might be sort of a common idea held that really so many people sort of had it with that mm. and are tired of having their humanity denied. You know, when I ask people and I, this has you know, sort of been the crux of my work of the research is to ask people about times when they felt afraid at work, times when they felt loved at work, exploring those stories and analyzing those stories for insights I really had no one say that they did their best work when they were scared to death, like toxically afraid. I've had people say that they have done great work when they've been uncomfortable and sort of on that performance edge. And that's a different kind of fear. So I think it's important to see we're not talking about that. Yeah. We're talking about toxic fear and this idea that we can, you know, toxically scare people or scare people in a way into performing and that that fear becomes so toxic as to be unproductive, disruptive, harmful, actually seriously harmful to human beings. Okay. I was trying to think, I was listening to you. I'm like, oh gosh, do I dare go down bunny trail? So I'm, (laughs) you listen to the show often, you know, there's not too often I've met a bunny trail that I can resist, a rabbit hole I can stay out of. So Renee, since we last talked, I got deep into 
the scarcity, the abundance loop, a book. I'm going to send you a copy. And when we get off, I'm going to show you a couple of the diagrams. But there were two diagrams. And this is what drew me. Before I ever knew there was a book, I saw the diagrams. The -hmm. scarcity loop starts with fear at the top. Fear creates anxiety. Anxiety leads to poor choices and poor choices result in negative outcomes. The cycle you were just talking about. I've looked at this in my own life. Every time I made a bad decision, and I've made several, we all have, what was happening? Every bad decision I can trace back to fear. Right. You know, there was some kind of fear. So Juliana Park, and I'll tag the episodes. We had two conversations with Juliana in the summer on the Higher Purpose podcast. The abundance loop starts with gratitude. Gratitude leads to peace of mind. Peace of mind produces wise decisions and wise decisions produce, lead to positive outcomes. You know, so again, that contrast of fear or love, and we even had the conversation with her fear or love, but in the practice, gratitude was what evolved as a practice as an expression of love. So I don't want to lose there. That's just something I want to introduce the tool to you after we get off finish the conversation because I think you'll love it and you'll see this in your work. Now, let's get back down to business. What you were just talking about, tease me up. To, you know, I was thinking, gosh, if Tina Turner were with us today and belting out those lines, what's love got to do with it? And the it being making work more human, how would you answer Tina Turner? What's love got to do with it, Renee? <laughs> So what's love got to do with it? I think it's the heart of the matter, Kevin. It's the core of things. And, you know, it's the core of performance. People may not choose to use that word. They may choose to use subsidiary words. That's all right. That's perfectly wonderful, actually. Use joy, use gratitude, use belonging, use inclusion, respect, trust, use any of those human experiences that are essential and that emanate from love. At the end of the day, though, I think it's important that people have the opportunity to realize and to pause and to appreciate that that all of those come from a space of love. And I'm really committed to not backing down from that idea or not not being afraid of that. I have found that the more kind of brave and bold I get with that word, the more it invites other people to be brave and bold with that word Um, and to kind of say, heck yeah, you know, I actually, as a human being, want love in my life. And not only in my personal life, but that there are versions of love that squarely live in my professional life. There are versions of love that live in our lives when we walk down the street and encounter a stranger. And, you know, we act with love for 15 seconds when we help a stranger, you know, in a precarious moment on the street that we will never see again. But that's an act of love, right? Yeah. Why would we not think that there are daily occurrences of instances of types of love in our workplace. Again, in the research that I've done, the examples that people give me are all about how love was put in action in their lives, in their work lives. Okay, let's get specific. Share two of those, you know, that because I think this is one of the challenges that you and I have, and we shared in the email dialogue that neither one of us are willing to back down from the word love. It's got to be love. And that reminds me of my friend, Erie Chapman, who wrote a book, Radical Loving Care, and was doing this in hospitals. And he had a board chair that said, gosh, we like what you're doing, but can't you call it something else? We'd be much more comfortable if you called it radical, compassionate care. And to Erie's credit, he stood his ground and he said, nothing else will cut it. It's got to be love because anything else is kind of watering down what's really there. 
Yeah, the invitation, I guess, that I bring and that I want to embody really is that this is the truth, that it is love. And that if you want to, you can step into that space of using that word. Don't be afraid of that. And a lot fewer people are going to argue with you than you might think. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And if your team, you know, you as a leader or your team decide maybe not quite yet or that not that word, then cool. Pick the words that work for you. You know, I'm not here to be the language police, certainly, or the love police, my God, no. Instead, though, know deep down that this is the space that all of the good things begin is with love. And then, you know, mm. you know when it comes to like love and action, I can, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I don't want to forget love and action because yeah. when we talk about love, people go, oh, that's all warm and fuzzy. It feels good. But what right. does it look like? Right. What's a concrete example? So this is what I want to hear a couple, whatever you want to share there, Renee. Yeah. So I'll run through a few examples. I work with a woman named Holly Jensen. She directs continuous improvement uh, for the state of Washington and results Washington. And she was charged for a time with developing the lean fellows for the state. And for her, putting love in action was about really focusing on quality development of those people. And people tell me this. They tell me that when a leader really takes an interest and cares about them and their development, they experience that as love. So she had organized one-on-one times with them. She had all kinds of support tools that she used. She was guided by certain principles. And then that was love in action. Yeah. And another example, um, we had an assistant director, Jeff Kanan, who took over a work team that was really struggling, a whole kind of division that provided statewide training, there were customer complaints, threatened budget cuts. And, you know, we know what fear in action in a situation like this would have looked like. It would have looked like finding out who to blame and, you know, letting some heads roll and cleaning house, all of that kind of thing. But instead, he embraced a style of leadership that was based on a deep respect for people as defined as holding precious what it is to be human, and then embraced facilitative leadership, taught his team listening to understand, and they went out and pursued customer satisfaction listening sessions and really digging into understanding what customers wanted, Mm. um, as well as what employees wanted, and totally turned that work team around. And that was love in action. Those team members experienced that as love. Pause there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. That's tweetable. Listening is... Love in action. Absolutely. Right. Anytime. How do I show love in this situation? Well, stop talking. <laughs> Don't assess blame. Just open up and listen. And it reminds me, there's another quote, and I can't remember some, you know, Duke of something said this years ago, that many a person would rather you hear their complaint than solve their issue. Yes. People aren't always looking for you to solve it. They just want an audience and just giving them the listening ear and the compassionate care to really give your attention. So listening is one of the greatest acts of love in action. I just had to call that out. Absolutely. And, you know, another example I want to give, I just interviewed a woman who was sharing her story of having been really successful in her work. Things were going great. She managed a team of like 10 or 12. They'd gotten good feedback, doing great work. And then a leader came into a leadership role and decided that the organization needed to be reorganized Hmm. toward this leader's particular vision. That reorg took her out of that leadership over her team, moved her into a different role. So she didn't lose her job or she didn't lose employment. She lost her particular role and her team and the work that she was doing and was sort of redeployed in a different way without really any explanation Hmm. of why. 
And when, you know, she was trying to embrace that, trying to, you know, move through that, even though it was very painful and, you know, made her sad, made her worried, afraid, like just caused a lot of uncertainty because she, you know, didn't know why. Um, and when she tried to express as they were processing all this, that in passing that, you know, she lost her job, she was corrected by the leader. The leader said, oh, you didn't lose your job. You still have a job. And, you know, and then subsequent conversations, it became really clear that like the way that leadership had decided to sort of frame this for employees, this change, they'd come up with a story to tell about the experience of this change. As leaders, like we do that, you know, we do that to try to help people move through. People aren't necessarily going to either immediately or ever experience the story that we want them to experience. And she never was listened to. No one ever just sat down and honored the fact that she was sad, that she was grieving, that she sensed this as a loss and that she was struggling to understand. No one gave her clear feedback. And she experienced that as fear. So when we sat down and she told me her story, what she told me was like, if someone had just listened to her, if someone had just been willing to hold the space for her truth, she could have moved through it easily. And actually, the, you know, the act of telling me, I saw her a couple of weeks later, and the act of telling me her story helped her to do that. Huh. Two things there. One, are you familiar with the book Managing Transition by William Bridges? Absolutely. Yes, it is an example of that, helping people through the transition process. When you were telling her story, I remembered something William wrote in the book that when someone overreacts, when we look at something mm-hmm. as overreaction, they're just interpreting a loss differently than we are. Yeah. So the leaders, yeah. you still have your job. Right. You are still employed. She lost her role. Her role was what made the job enjoyable to her. It wasn't the paycheck. It right. was the work she had done. So, you know, just not connecting, like you said, if they just sat down and heard her out and allowed her to process that, the loss then she could have, because William Bridges has the three phases, right? All transition begins with an ending. Then there's this wilderness wandering of repatterning, and then it ends with a new beginning. Right. She was stuck in the wilderness because she didn't get to grieve her loss. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, one of the things I've been struck by is that I've really come to believe that as leaders, well, the higher up we go in an organization, the greater our capacity and capability for love has to be. Oh, that's good. I wonder. Let's see that in a job description. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the situation I just described, everywhere across the country, there are iterations of leaders who just don't have the capacity to sit with someone else's emotion and to not be threatened by that, to sit with someone else's sorrow over their decision, to sit with someone else's you know, grief, their sense of loss, you know, whatever their reaction is to that. And it is love. It is a loving act to be able to sit in front of another human being and hear their truth and honor that and not, you know, correct them in that, but to say, I hear you, I see you, I acknowledge that those are your feelings. And gosh, I think we could use a whole lot more leaders who are doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Because here's the thing, people will then move forward. Yes. It's not like we're going to sit in this pity party. And I think that that's what people get worried about. Oh, if I like make space for this, it's going to get out of control. Actually, if we make space for people to be human in this way, in these critical moments, they then are able better to move forward and cope and, and embrace and move on. So, 
Okay. So in our preparation for this, you and I were emailing. There's something I've just got to ask you because I don't want to leave this part of the conversation where we're talking about love having to be love. You said, I'm unashamed about that because ultimately I believe that love is the right thing. Mm -hmm. And this is where I want to direct your attention. It is healing a deep wound we carry around as Western people. And you said leaders carry that wound at a deeper level than others sometimes. Let's talk about that woundedness. Yeah, well... I have seen that in the faces of people. It's kind of back to the gentleman who spent 30 years denying, you know, having to sort of put his check, his humanity at the door when he came to work. And it starts earlier than, you know, our first day of work. It starts in our acculturation as younger people, you know, as children. And when we're sort of told to stop crying or, (laughs) you know, don't feel that way, pull it together or whatever. You know, we get these little steps of acculturation to realize that, oh, some things, some parts of our humanity are not welcome. Some parts of our identity are not welcome. Some parts of our experience are not welcome. And that the more like we leave behind of ourselves, the more we become just like brain and body, but not intuition, not spirit, not emotion, not relationships, not our identities. The more we leave all of the rest of that, we become sort of hollow and have this kind of gaping wound for all the stuff that's missing from us. You're quoting C.S. Lewis there. (laughs) You know, the hollowing out of man, the emptying out of man when we deny that part of man. Uh, Yeah, yeah. There's this, what I've kind of just cycled through is this Inspire model that I've been working with and brought forward in here in, in the state of Washington and working with teams to use. I mean, it's this idea that as human beings, as full human beings, we have our identities. There's our background, sort of our racial gender orientation, all of those kinds of identities, as well as our key life experiences, things that we're passionate about, things that make up the core of who we are. Those bring brilliance to our work. Yes, know, they do. Our identities. We have our intuition. We have our deep knowing, which is so identities is the I, intuition is the take the second letter, it's the N. So we have this sometimes ability to deeply know from a different, not a headspace, but from a gut sense what's happening in a situation or to be connected with people. We have our, let's see, our spirit, a sense of connection to something greater, however a person would define that, a spiritual sense. We have our physical bodies. We have our intellect, we have our relationships and our connections to each other, and we have our emotions. And all of that is part of what it means to be fully human. I think that when we come first to terms with what that means for us personally, and we value those aspects of our own selves and how those feed us, how those feed our work, how those inform the way that we do our work uniquely and brilliantly, then we can turn and value that in others. And so part of the work that we've been doing here is to help people to reconnect with their whole selves and then honor that in each other. Wow. Wow. Okay. So we breezed over something you said a few moments ago, but I can't let it go. You said the braver and bolder you've been about this conversation, the braver and bolder you find people to be. Let's dig into that a bit. How have you become braver and bolder first? What does that look like for you, Renee? And then when did you start noticing the mirroring of that? Or, you know, is it that you've invited people in somewhere? Just, I want to unpack that. Well, yeah, thank you. So there's nothing like being a woman at this moment in the world and standing up and deciding that the rest of my life, the rest of my career 
is going to be about advocating for love. Okay, high five. Let's virtually high five. <laughs> high five in the screen here. Right. <laughs> yeah, honestly, when I, you know, things sort of fell into place and I realized that, like, I honestly burst into tears in my driveway, you know, mm-hmm. and that all of the steps and all of the pieces had come into place and that this path had opened up in front of me. And that that came from first being curious, asking questions, not waiting to sort of be invited, but just saying, hey, I've got some space. I have some autonomy to be able to study this. I'm going to study this. I have some, you know, it fits within my work to be able to take, you know, this next step and sort of begin to share and just like moving forward in that without um, hesitance. You know, we wait sometimes for permission rather than just realizing, well, maybe this is just within the realm of what I can do. And so let's just do that. Oh, okay. Wait, wait. Say that again. <laughs> Not waiting for permission. Yeah. I mean, because I think there's so many people that go, oh, I could, but should I, you know, and what might happen and all of this. So how did you just say, hmm, because I believe there's so many things in life. Permission's really been given. Just yeah. seize the opportunity. Yeah. So I had tremendous support in the organization that I was working in, support from my leadership. And I was in a role that had a lot of room within our government to government consulting to explore topics that related to how do we help government work better. So I pursued that, right? I just pursued those questions and pursued what it meant to steps that were logical and that were important to bring that out into the world and to begin to test and share. And what I found was that Well, first, I didn't expect the overwhelming positive response that I received. Like, I did not expect people to be quite so hungry, quite Mm. so thirsty, starving, you know, as they were. And and I certainly thought that, well, you know, that sort of conventional wisdom is that there's going to be this sort of negativity or that you you shouldn't be saying that that rose up. But instead, it has been quite the opposite. Wow. Wow. It's been... Thank you for saying that. Please come say that more. Please come share that more. Please come show us how. Please come explore that with us. We're already doing this here. We want you to come be part of that. And things just keep expanding, expanding and expanding. So that initial step of boldness, you know, has fed more steps of boldness. And then I see as I have been out speaking and sharing out in the world and I bring back into my government work what what I'm hearing from others on the outside. And I can look an audience or a group of people or a leader in the face and say, you know what, this response that you're having right now or this actions that you're taking, you're not alone. Mm. There are all kinds of people out here in the world who agree with you, who are also moving in this direction. Um, I've seen them. I've talked to them. It's not just those of us up here in the corner of the U.S. Um, in the state of Washington and in state government in Olympia who are beginning to act on this and, and explore this and, and really learn what this means for you know each of our work environments. But there are people all over the world who are saying yes to this. Oh, and that's what I see. And three weeks ago on the podcast, when I spoke with Mike Vacanti, whom you know, yeah. founder of the Humans First Club, and we were talking about how that's a movement. It's not just a meeting. It's a movement. Yes. And it's not something he started. It tapped into this energy, this longing that's within people. And it's all over. And that's what you and I are a part of. That's what we've seen. That, you know, that you just kind of strike a match, light a candle, and all of a sudden everybody's bringing their candle to the party because they're shining the same light. So one thing I want to just say before we continue, if you're listening what Renee just, you are not alone. You may feel weird. 
that you think about love the way you think about love, you're not weird. You are just wired differently. Embrace the way you're wired and then connect with those people who are wired like you are because there are a bunch of us. And I think that's just reassuring. Yeah, you know what I would offer is that I think we're all wired that way. And this gets back to the wound. I think that we're all wired that way. It's just that some of us have had our wiring disconnected. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's, yeah. We've been acculturated to unplug those wires, to clip them. Some people resisted that and didn't unwire themselves, so to speak, if we keep that analogy going, or have, you know, reconnected the wires somehow, have repaired that. I think that this work is to invite that. If your wiring is intact, awesome. The world needs you to keep that intact. Your workplace needs you to keep that intact. Your coworkers, your leaders, your team members. And part of you know our work is to help other people reconnect their wiring. Oh, I love and that. Get back in touch with themselves. <laughs> okay, so one more thing about love, and then we're going to talk about results before we run out of time. You, sure. you said you facilitate a workshop that guides people to explore the kinds of love that belong at work. Yes. You want to share a high level of that? Yeah, so we've found that there are certain questions that come up, you know, this, like one of the other questions is what does it mean to be human centered? And so like I have a workshop that helps people explore and understand that concept. Another question that's come up is like, really love at work? What do you mean? And like, are you sure? And what does love really belong at work? And so the workshop looks like bringing people together. And we've done it a few different ways. But oftentimes, there are different kinds of love that are assigned at tables. So there's the kindness table, there's the empathy table, there's the compassion table, there's the respect table, there's the inclusion table, there's the belonging table, the trust table. And people are invited to share stories with each other and tell your partner a story about a time when you experienced kindness at work. The whole table shares those stories with their partners, they mine those stories for insights and themes, and they come away with some conclusions and then have a dialogue about you know, how would you define that kind of love? So how do you define kindness? How do you define respect, trust, and so on? What are the benefits that came to you as an individual, to your team, to your customer, to your work from that kind of love? What's the shadow side of it? Because we've got to explore the shadow too. So what are the downsides of the cautions you need to have when putting this kind of love in action? And then if you were to advertise, if you will, if you were to kind of advertise or promote that kind of love to your colleagues in the room, you know, make a poster, you know, we have the team kind of do create a a visual that offers the benefits and how that kind of love shows up in the workplace and why they should consider it valuable. Uh, We do a gallery walk and appreciate that. And what people come away realizing is, oh, I already experienced love at work. Here's all of these different forms that it shows up in. It's not weird. It's not squishy. It's normal. Sometimes it's really strong. Often it's really strong. It's powerful. It can be tough sometimes because we're not talking about just holding love for, you know, the person right in front of us. We're talking about having to consider how we act with love for a whole system. And again, like that's why the farther up you go, the more a leader has to have a greater capacity because it's not just, you know, this one team member but it's considering all the team members and all the complexity and depth and breadth of that. And it's considering what does putting love in action look like in terms of honoring our customers and doing right by them. So, you know, it's complicated. You know, sometimes we have to make hard decisions. Sometimes love in action looks difficult. It doesn't mean that we don't ever, you know, have to discipline someone or have to make, you know, performance driven decisions, but those can always be handled with respect. Yeah. 
I'll hearken back to a line from Rich Sheridan. It's in his book, Chief Joy Officer, but it came out in the conversation we had back in December on the podcast. He was writing about love in his book, and he said, how can, if tough love is required, how can we not be harsh? You know, just because you have to do discipline, you can do that in a human way, or you could do that in a harsh way. And love invites us to find the humanity in that and resist the harshness that we've seen or maybe even practiced in the past ourselves. Yes. And I think that that goes, it takes us back to leaders having to be able to be in a space of emotional discomfort with that moment. Yes. You know, and not like kind of putting up the shell. It's harshness is a shell. You know, if I have to tell this human being, I'm sorry, we can't keep you in this position. We're going to help you find another place to be or another job. Sometimes those decisions have to be made, but they don't have to be, as you say, with harshness. And we don't have to kind of wall our humanity off in those moments. And the more we can be real in those moments and with a person, the more it helps them move along and the more we don't sort of sacrifice our humanity. Right. Okay. So there's a master class coming here at some point where we're going to talk about this for leaders and how to help leaders really tap into love when fear would be so much of the easier response to. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is also important though, is that, you know, people say to me, like, I believe this, I want to live this, but I'm going back to a team, to a situation, you know, my team members, my colleagues, my leader, like, don't get this. What can I do? Or what can I do about them? Right. How do I fix them? And what I'm very clear about now is that there is an important piece of this work that is about owning the fact that we're not victims in our environment, that we're creators in our environment. And I know that can sound a little, maybe a little woo-woo to people, but that when we show up, we bring an energy. It's part of our colloquial, you know, the colloquial way that we talk. Somebody comes barreling in or, you know, that person shows up and the room brightens up or You know, there's ways that we're tapped into other people's energy that they're bringing. We need to own the fact that no matter where we are in an organizational structure, that by showing up with a particular intent and showing up in love ourselves, that we impact our colleagues, our team, our leader. So I would just offer that. Okay. So I want to go back early in the conversation when you were talking about what's happened in your journey over the last six months and that, you know, how the sphere of influence change for you personally and for the work. So what was it? Let's talk about the results, the business value of love. What is it that the state of Washington is seeing that says we want more of this, not less of this? It's not, hey, let's, you know, how do we sweep this under the carpet, make it go away? No, how do we, they're elevating it. Why? Yeah, so we're just at the beginning of being able to tie and document this to things like employee engagement, survey results. We're at the kind of the beginning of the formalization of that journey because I just came into the formal role around, you know, building this programmatically throughout the state in October. So we'll come back to maybe another 30 episodes and and hopefully have more more meat on the, the channel of specific results that we've seen that are like tied to hard measures like that on the employee side and then on the customer side. And we're really looking to demonstrate if we intervene with a team who starts out at a certain, you know, levels of satisfaction with their work and certain levels of customer satisfaction with whatever product or service it's producing, you know, we want to demonstrate that as we help people to be more human-centered in their work, more loving and human-centered, that we can help shift their experience and their customer experience. But we are seeing some leading indicators that have obviously paved the way for this, right? Yes, right. So, 
we hear people say, and it's the kind of reporting back, you know, I took this workshop and I went back to my team and we're interacting differently now. And it shifted the way that people are behaving day to day. It's shifting sort of this, the way that our team feels, like the experience of our team. It's shifting us from being hesitant with each other to being more centered and comfortable with each other. And out of that comfort, out of that ability to communicate, sense of inclusion, we're just doing better work. Huh. There's lots of little versions of that. That's sort of the arc of the story. We started out in one place, we weren't sure, but as we've embraced this idea, we're working better together. And, you know, that came out of my research as well. People reported stories of, you know, when their team was like a family, that they wanted to be at work, they were loyal, and they could then like tug and pull at things. They could argue in a good, healthy, you know, respectful Mm -hmm. way, disagree, and come to better solutions. And again, there's versions of that playing out all over. Um, And we're just beginning. I don't want to paint the picture that like this is invaded every corner of state government yet. It's at the very beginning. Okay. So, Renee, we're out of time here. Thanks for joining us. But before you go, is there something you want to say that helps you tie a bow around this conversation? And it doesn't bring it to an end, but brings it to a pause for now and tease up episode three of our conversation. Oh, I would say that I would invite people to not be afraid of love, Mm. to not be afraid of love to not be afraid to live into that, to put love in action in their work, in their day-to-day lives, in the place that we spend more time than anything, to not be afraid of it uh, because it's what we each need to be fully ourselves and to you know bring our best selves into the world. And it's what our colleagues need. It's what our coworkers need from us. So to not be afraid of it. That's beautiful. And I can also see that in different level and see that some people don't necessarily be skeptical of the love that your leader's showing. Don't think that there's some ulterior motive to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good corollary. I like that. All right. So for people that have listened to this and they're like, oh my gosh, I want more. Where do they go to learn more about making work more human? They go to makeworkmorehuman.com. There's a resources and kind of the, the story of this work out there. I blog. You can sign up to receive emails no matter where you are in the world. You don't have to be in state government. You can be, we've got people, a growing mailing list um, from around the country and welcome to join in on that and would love to have them as part of the community. Well, Renee, thank you so much. Beautiful conversation and contribution to the ongoing conversation of making work more human. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Renee half as much as I did because that was just a rich, deep conversation. And there's so many things echoing in my mind that I'm really, I'm like, well, gosh, how do I pick three, four, five, six, seven? No, I won't go to seven. Three or four of these that I really want to call out to you. One of these, I just love this, that investing in people, investing in the development of people is love in action. Listening to people is love in action. You don't have to necessarily look at the really big things. There are very small yet significant things that you and I can do on a daily basis that show people love. So make sure you're doing that. A second one, boy, this is this got a little deep philosophically, that don't be a victim of your environment. Instead, 
Be a creator of your environment. Every one of us has that possibility, that power, that potential lies in you. It lies in me. So as uh, Peter Drucker used to say, the best way to predict the future is to create the future. So create the environment that surrounds you. And then finally, I loved Renee's response when I said, well, you know, maybe you're not weird. You're just wired differently. And Renee's response was, we're all wired that way. For some of us, the wires have been cut or broken. So if you're like me and you're weird or wired differently, take opportunity to help rewire the people around you. And you do that by asking this question. What does putting love in action look like for me right now, today? So that's the challenge I want to leave you. What does putting love in action look like? Hey, until we connect again, remember to live, love, and lead with purpose. If you're a leader who is or wants to be entrusted with the transformation of your team, join Kevin and six other leaders for a year-long journey of transformation that will help you release your brilliance and help others to do the same. Email kevin at kevindmonroe.com to begin the application process.